have you turn to Isaiah chapter 8, beginning at verse 16. As we read uh, in this reading something that's very familiar to you, I trust. If you've been around Advent services, then you certainly have heard this passage read. If you've ever been or are a fan of Handel's Messiah, you've heard it sung. But I wonder, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, I wonder how many have ever read chapter 9 in connection with chapter 8, which does immediately precede chapter 9. So let's, let's have this in context as we hear God's great promise of the gift of his son. Isaiah Chapter 8, beginning at verse 16, 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. This is Isaiah speaking. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for coming as a child who is as well a wonder, full of counsel, a mighty warrior king, a father who is everlasting, and one who makes peace. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Give us your spirit so that we can understand these things, be shaped by them. More and more, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. There is a new verse in my Bible. It wasn't there before. I'm sure of it. Now, the way some people talk about this, they'll say, the Lord gave me a verse. Okay? But my way of talking about it is to say, there's a verse in my Bible that wasn't there before. You know how that works? You know why it works that way? It works that way because there's more going on here than black words on a white page. This is a book unlike any other book. Any other book, it's black words on a white page or a manila page or or whatever. But with this book, it's different. And the reason it's different The thing that makes the Bible so rich and so remarkable is because there's more to it than just words. You've had the experience, I trust. I mean, and if you haven't, can I can I encourage you if you're not in the habit regularly of reading the Bible that you that you do that, that you get into the habit regularly of reading the Bible? Because there's more that goes on here than just reading words and getting ideas in your head. There is word and there is spirit. And when the two things come together, it's magical. It's mysterious. It's profound. It's sort of indefinable and indescribable. But it's like, it's like stepping into a matrix, to use one analogy that some of you may be familiar with. It's like stepping across a threshold or a wardrobe into a different land, to use another analogy that others of you may be familiar with, whether it's the movie The Matrix or C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia, when, when you come to the Word of God, you're stepping into somebody else's world. You're stepping into the world of the Word and the Spirit. And when the Word and the Spirit come together, you never know what might happen. And you can read something a thousand times, a hundred thousand times, ten hundred thousand times. And then there is that one moment and you read it and it was never in the Bible before. Ever happened to you? Put yourself in the path of what is marvelous, what is mysterious, what is inexplainable. Step into the matrix. The matrix is always there. Narnia is always there. The question is, am I? (laughs) I got to get there. 
I got to put myself in the place where the matrix can take over, where word and spirit can do their arresting thing. That happened to me this last week. Now, this particular verse itself may not seem to be a very hopeful thing, but I will tell you that it was hopeful for me. Psalm 13, verse 5. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it. I'm sorry, Psalm 13, verse 2. Here's the verse I read. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Now, have you ever had that experience? How long must I take counsel in my heart and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long must I try to reason with myself? Must I try to talk to myself? Must I try to persuade myself, convince myself, figure things out, sort things out, only to be left with sorrow in my heart all the day? Now, here's my question. And I swear to you that that verse was not in my Bible until this last Wednesday. Maybe it wasn't in my Bible because I tend to think that the people I find in the Scriptures are above me, more holy than I am, more spiritual than I am, better than I am, that they don't struggle in the ways that I struggle, at the depth of struggle that I experience. But, you know, God said to me, you're not alone. Not alone. Here's David. How long must I take counsel with myself and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? My question is a question to me in the midst of Advent. It's my question for you. Where do you go with your sorrow? Where do you go with your grief? Where do you go with these uncertainties, these perplexities? Where do you go with this inability to think your way out, reason your way out, believe your way out of a sorrow that you carry with you all the day? Look, folks, Advent is not about sentimentality. Advent is not about wishful thinking. Advent is not about the vacuous, gutless, whimsy of Hallmark greeting cards. (laughs) Happy holidays. May the spirit of the season accompany you through the year to come. What is that? If all this season is is another occasion, please don't take this personally. But if all this season is, is another occasion for me to send another photo card of me with the latest additions to my family with happy holidays at the bottom, let's pack it up and go home. Because it's bigger than that, and it's more than that. It is about hope. A hope that is begun, and a hope that looks forward to consummation. When verses 4 
and 5 of Isaiah 9 are fulfilled completely. When the burdens that crush and the staffs that whip and the rods that bruise are broken. And when the marching hordes with boots that trample in battle tumult, along with all of the rest of their military paraphernalia, are all rolled up and consumed in fire forever so that peace prevails pervasively and eternally. That's what 4 and 5 is talking about. Advent is about the hope that the day is coming when those verses will be fulfilled. Advent is about a child who comes into the world to end gloom and darkness and sorrow in the world out there and in my heart in here. For the people of Isaiah's day, there was plenty of reason to be gloomy. Plenty of reason for Isaiah, God through Isaiah, to use words like darkness and anguish. And the reason was that there were threats, actually two of them. First, an external threat. You read the first eight chapters of Isaiah and you see warnings of the threat. The threat is Assyria. This horde of murderous, ruthless, brutal, marauding, destroying armies. They will come. We talked about how the Assyrians were artists when it came to brutality and the kinds of things that they would do. Things, frankly, I didn't read passages then. I'm not going to read passages now because there are impressionable people in our midst. And the brutality of the Assyrians was such that to read descriptions of what Assyrians did to their conquered enemies isn't appropriate for polite conversation and preaching. Those of you who know the Tolkien Lord of the Rings trilogies, trilogy, these are the Urukai. Bloodthirsty, gross, foul, disgusting in their brutality. Look at chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. The Lord is bringing them up, and he will bring up against Israel the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all of his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of the land. O Emmanuel. You look at verse 1 of chapter 9, and there is a reference there made to Zebulun and to Naphtali and the fact that there is, is darkness in Zebulun and Naphtali and this place that is called the Way of the Sea, Galilee of the Nations. It's the northernmost part of the country. If you can get your geography quickly in mind, there is the eastern 
end of the Mediterranean and there's this little strip of land and then up to the north of that little strip of land are the nations, the Gentile nations. And Zebulun and Naphtali and the Sea of Galilee are in the northernmost part of the nation. And so if you're living in the south and you look to the north, you know that's where the Gentile nations are and you know that's where the Assyrians are going to come from. The Assyrians who are way over here to the east but who don't come directly west in their attacks on the promised land, the Holy Land, but they follow the Fertile Crescent from the Tigris and the Euphrates across what are now Syria and Lebanon, and they descend, they cross over like a flood into Judah, the marauding hordes, and it becomes a place of darkness and hopelessness and anguish and despair. It's where the threats are. That's the first threat. But the second threat explains the first threat. And this is the backdrop against which Isaiah 9 needs to be heard. The second threat isn't an external threat. The second threat is really the first threat. It's the primary threat. And it's the threat of the human heart and the threat of sin. And it is sin. It is the sin of the people, which is the explanation for why the second threat, which we've talked about first, why the second threat comes. Look at verses 18 to 22 again. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts, What's Isaiah talking about? Well, he's talking about the first part of chapter 8 where Isaiah is given this child, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Say that ten times. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Which means very simply, the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. It's an ironic name, but it's given to Isaiah to give to his child as a way of communicating. It is a sign. It is what the text calls a portent. It is a sign that God is serious, and it is a sign that Isaiah, representing God, is speaking the truth. I, Isaiah, and the children whom thou hast given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, who, when the people of Israel, of Judah and the northern tribe Israel, when they say, inquire, ask of the mediums and the necromancers, Isaiah's response is to say, should they not, should the people not inquire of their God? Why, oh why? Should they inquire of the dead, that which is lifeless, that which cannot see, which cannot act, which cannot feel, which cannot love? Why should they, why should they ask something lifeless in behalf of someone who is living? No, to the teaching and to the testimony. Go back to the things you've heard. Go back to the things you've learned. Go back to what God has spoken and revealed about Himself. Go back to that. And if you will not, and if you will not, it will be that you will have no dawn. You will have no light. You will have no light. 
And then verse 21, and here is where the insanity of all of this is most clearly displayed. They will pass through the land. Who will pass through the land? Tragically, it is the people of God who have looked God squarely in the face and have said, we would rather have our idols. We would rather look to those things that do not live, cannot live, do not see, do not speak, do not hear, do not love. Who They will pass through the land, those who have cut themselves off from the living God who is the source of life. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will become enraged. And they will speak contemptuously against their God and their king, Two terms to refer to the same person, not terms referring to different people, an earthly king and a heavenly king, but two terms referring to their one true king, their one true God. They will speak contemptuously of him and they will lift up their faces to the heavens and hear nothing. And hear nothing. Have you ever seen this sort of thing? Have you ever experienced this sort of thing? Here's what's being described, if I can personalize it. I've been in ministry for 30 years. I've had so many of these conversations, and they break my heart, and they show me just how willful, how blind, how tragically bound the human heart is, sitting with someone who is perhaps advanced in years, maybe not advanced in years, someone who has had some catastrophe befall him or befall her, Someone who over the course of 10 or 20 or 30 years has never given a thought to God. Who in fact has sought to replace the one true God, the source of life and hope and peace and blessedness with idols, with other gods that are deaf and mute and can't act and can't love. And when those idols have finally demonstrated their bankruptcy, their emptiness, their powerlessness to forgive, to save, to cleanse, to give life. The one who has had this catastrophe befall him or befall her turns away from the idols and turns to the God from whom they have severed themselves and act contemptuously and cry out, Why have you done this to me? How could you be so cruel and mean and heartless? Have you ever ever seen that? It breaks my heart. I tell you, I'm not making this up. I weep. I weep when I'm with someone who has done that. Who has said, God, you are no God. I will have nothing to do with you. I prefer my car, my bank account, my prestige, my power, my house, my security, my safety, my reputation, my job, my status, whatever it is. I prefer the less polite things. You know, we can talk about those things. Those are the polite things, but there are other kinds of addictions that are less polite 
And whether they're more polite or less polite, we've turned away from the one true God and we've loved these things and we've sought salvation from these things. We've sought to make these things God. And then the catastrophe hits. Then the marauding invaders make their descent into the land and they crush and they kill and they destroy. Are you working with me on this, this metaphor? And we lift up our hands to the, heads to the heavens and we say, why have you done this? And we're puzzled. And we're amazed. God, you are not good. God, you are evil. God, you are cruel. It doesn't matter that I have rejected you. What matters is that you have rejected me. I must tell you, I've read Isaiah dozens of times. I've heard it read dozens of times. I've heard it sung dozens of times. I've read Isaiah 9 dozens of times. Preached it many times. But I've never considered Isaiah 9 against the backdrop of chapter 8. And the relentless rebellion of the human heart towards a God who has manifested himself, displayed himself, demonstrated himself repeatedly to be supremely beautiful and good. It is the human heart that is insane. What did the prodigal say when he couldn't even scrape together pea pods that were being fed to pigs. What do the scriptures say happened to the prodigal? He came to his senses. He became sane. He looked at the squalor, the bankruptcy of all of the stuff that he'd been chasing, and he came to his senses. What does sin do to people, folks? It makes them insane. And it kills them. And it's against that backdrop that I read chapter 9. You know, and I couldn't, I couldn't help but think of this scene, this incredible scene, this incredible picture in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Let me, let me ask you. If you're God, and I'm glad you're not, because if you were, I think you would respond the way I think I would respond. If I were God and if you were God, how would you respond to the resolute, recurring rebellion and rejection that is characteristic of the people of God? If you were their God, what would you do? What would you say? I know what I would say. I know what I would do. Because I've done it with my children. That's what indicates to me that I know what I would do if I were God with the heart that I have. I haven't loved my children unconditionally. 
I haven't loved them regardless of what they say to me, think of me, do to me, do with all of the incredible kindnesses and blessings that their mother and I have poured out upon them. I exact a pound of flesh. What would you do? But look at what God does. Isaiah 9, verse 1. Against this insanity, the brutal, relentless rejection of a God who is life and health and peace and joy and hope, the rejection of that God, God doesn't quit. Verse 1 of chapter 9. But there will be no gloom. There will be no gloom. People have said, probably dozens of them across the centuries, the largest word in the whole of Scripture is this three-letter word, but. Because it always leads to what God does in stunning and surprising manner. The scene from Les Miserables, It's when Jean Valjean is on the lamb and he has no place to sleep and he has no clothes and he has nothing to eat and he finds his way to the bishop's house and the bishop gives him a bed, clean linen. He's just gotten out of prison. The first time he slept on clean linen in who knows how long, years and years and years, more than 19. And the bishop gives him a bed with clean linen and invites him to rest and feeds him at his own loss and expense. And then in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean awakens in this beautiful bed with clean linens and tiptoes downstairs and steals all of the bishop's silver after kindness has been extended, after grace has been extended, steals all of the bishop's silver, makes away in the night with the silver in his knapsack. The next day he is arrested by the gendarmes and the gendarmes take him back to the bishop. And they ask the bishop, in effect, is this your silver? We found this man, this vagrant, this thief wandering the streets with your silver. Is this your silver? And the bishop, with his eyes fixed upon Jean Valjean, speaks to the gendarmes and says, No, it is his. It was my gift to him. And then the bishop looks at Jean Valjean and says, You've forgotten the candlesticks. You didn't take the candlesticks. And he goes to the pantry and he pulls the silver candlesticks out of the pantry and he stuffs them into his stuff sack. You see what he's doing? He stuffs more grace, not less. More mercy, more kindness into the rucksack of his poor, paltry life. How does God respond to the people of God who have rejected him? But there will be no more gloom. 
But a light will dawn and the light will shine and it will extend well beyond you. It will extend well beyond Zebulun and Naphtali, this way along the sea up near where the Gentiles live. It will extend out into the nations. Verse 2, verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy, a little light that will extend into the whole of the world and engulf all of the nations. And how will it come? It will come in the form of a child. Against the backdrop. See, get this. Against the backdrop of this relentless, arrogant rejection of the one true God. God comes in humility, in meekness, as a child. Everything that God does, everything about the one true God is absolutely, utterly upside down. Upside down. Unexpected. You know, Martin Luther um, is troublesome. Okay, he's troublesome. He did some stupid things. Sometimes the counsel that he gave to people whom he knew well seemed stupid, seemed Unchristian seemed frighteningly loose. He said to Philip Melanchthon once, Philip Melanchthon, who, who had a brain as big as a, I don't know what. He said to Philip Melanchthon, who was very disciplined, he said to Philip Melanchthon, Philip, you need to go sin so that you can understand grace. Not with your big brain, but in the depths of your soul. God is sometimes that remarkable and that stunning. That stunning that when we've sinned the most grievously, we think we've sinned the most grievously, what does He do? He stuffs more silver into the knapsack. He can't get enough of giving more grace and mercy and kindness to the objects of his grace and mercy and kindness. And that is what he does. He gives a child really quickly. What is the name of this child? Well, got a half an hour? Let me do this in five minutes if I can. If you listen to Messiah, you'll hear reflected in Messiah something that's a bit perplexing about the Hebrew text, where those names are listed. There are actually four of them. In Messiah, it's rendered five. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, that is because the term that is translated wonderful in verse 6 is not an adjective modifying a noun, but it is itself a noun. Literally, the word should be wonder, simply wonder. It's an abstract noun, but it is a noun. It's not an adjective. And yet it's connected to this other noun, counselor. He certainly is a counselor. If you want to read some great stuff on this, read E.J. Young's commentary on Isaiah. That's where, that's where this comes from. He certainly is all of these things, but he is first called a wonder 
Is he a counselor? He absolutely is a counselor. What's so striking about this child is that he's unlike every other king or prince ever placed in power or elected to power. Barack Obama is putting together his team. What are they? They're counselors. They're advisors. Why does he need them? Because he's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything that he needs to know, and he lacks wisdom. Presumably, he knows those things. And he's putting together advisors. But this child is the counselor. Why is this child the counselor? Doesn't need counselors. Doesn't need this entourage. Because this child possesses those attributes of omniscience and wisdom. He knows everything there is to know and married to it is a wisdom that is pure and perfect. And so by that knowledge and by that wisdom, he is able to give counsel. So he's a counselor. He's also the mighty God, literally God the hero, God the warrior. It's a term that is used throughout the Old Testament to describe warriors and what warriors do. It's used of David's mighty men, men who engaged in valiant conquest. Who is he? He's a warrior God. He comes with his sword brandished, with his arm bared. He comes in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the one who would come, the warrior, the king, who would come to quash evil, to squash the evil one, the one who would come to do what verses 4 and 5 talk about doing, gaining victory over the enemies. He is a warrior God. He is the everlasting Father, eternally a Father to His people, forever guarding, protecting, defending, and providing for His people with the tender affection of a Father. He is the Father who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He is those things. And He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who brings peace, and He is the one who by his life and death and resurrection gets rid of and eliminates the cause of enmity. He doesn't bring a superficial peace. He effects a real peace by his death, reconciling sinners to God so that there may be peace between God and man and eliminating hostilities at the horizontal level between man and man so that Ephesians 3, God might make both of Jew and Gentile one people where there are no hostilities and there is no enmity and racism and social oppression and all of the other things that fracture and break and are destructive of humankind are gone because of Christ. He brings peace. But over all of it, he is a wonder. E.J. Young says that all of these other titles, attributes of this child are to be subsumed, subsumed under and they live in the shadow of this first word that he is a wonder. Now think about this. You think about him being a counselor. You thinking about him, think about being him, him being a warrior God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. All of those other attributes describe him in his relationship to someone else. But I think what E.J. Young is getting at is that this child is more wondrous 
even than the benefits which flow to his people. In fact, to have the benefits without having the one who gives the benefits is to live in the wilderness apart from the God who is the wonder. Let me read something for you. This is a favorite passage of mine. It's from the wind in the willows, that great children's story by Kenneth Graham. It's a scene from that book, The Wind in the Willows, where Mole and Rat, these two characters, have been searching all night for Portly, this little baby otter who is lost. Okay, now get this. Mole and Rat have been using all of their energies, exhausting every resource to find this baby otter. And when they find the baby otter, they find the baby otter resting between the legs of the great Pan, who is a picture in this metaphor of God. He lies there sleeping, safe and secure between his hooves. And Pan has been playing. He's been playing his music, you see. He's been summoning the mole and the rat. It's a gift. It's a blessing that comes from Pan. And it summons them and it draws them as they look for the baby otter. But as they come into the presence of Pan, this is what Rat says. This is the place of my song dream the place where the music played to me. Here, in this holy place, here, if anywhere, surely we shall find him. And if you look at the text of the story, the hymn is no longer the little otter. The hymn is capitalized, you see. What has begun to happen for mole and for rat is that they've lost sight of the baby otter. And they're being drawn and they're being compelled to come to something infinitely greater than even the concern for the baby otter. And then suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water and bowed his head and rooted his feet to the ground. But it was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. But it was an awe that smote and held him. And without seeing, he knew it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. With great difficulty, he turned to look for his friend, and he saw him at his side, cowed, stricken, and trembling violently. And still, There was utter silence in the populous bird-haunted branches around them. But the light grew and grew. And perhaps he would never dare raise his eyes. But that, though the piping, the music, was now hushed, the call, the summons, still seemed dominant and imperious. 
he might not refuse to look, even if death were waiting to strike him instantly. Trembling, he obeyed. He raised his humble head. And then in the utter clearness of the imminent dawn, while nature flushed with incredible color and seemed to hold her breath for the event, he looked in the very eyes of the friend and helper. He saw the backward sweep of the curved horns gleaming in the growing daylight. He saw the stern hooked nose behind between the kindly eyes that were looking down on them humorously while the bearded mouth broke into a half smile at the corners. He saw the rippling muscles on the arm that lay across the broad chest and the long supple hand still holding the panpipes only just falling away from parted lips. And he saw the splendid curves of the shaggy limbs disposed in majestic ease on the sward and saw last of all, nestling between his hooves, sleeping soundly in entire peace and contentment, the little round, podgy, childish form of the baby otter. All this he saw for one moment, breathless and intense, vivid on the morning sky. And still as he looked, he lived. And still as he lived, he wondered. Rat. He found breath to whisper, shaking, Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured Rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Never. Never. And yet, and yet, O Mole, I am afraid. And the two animals, crouching to the earth, did bow their heads and did worship. Above everything that he gives, beyond every blessing that comes, he is himself the wonder. Go back to Psalm 13. Read it this afternoon. Where does David go? In the midst of the anguish, the struggles, the difficulties of his own life. I will trust in your unfailing love. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what a wonder you are. And I thank you for this picture of this poor, helpless, lost baby otter, secure and safe, resting at the feet of this one who is mighty. Lord, please, for each of us here, grant us to know that because of Jesus, because he is the wonder that he is, There is a place of quiet and rest and peace for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing just the first and the last verses of number 193.